You're listening to Through the Darkness, a show about the search for the sacred in the mundane and profane of ordinary life. I'm Chris Gurria. I'm delighted to feature this episode's guest, Mike Amuda, a friend of mine who is a graduate student at Grand Valley State University. Michael will lead us into Holy Week, the seven-day period leading into Easter, with her essay entitled, Micah Muda Queers Up the Resurrection. In it, Micah reflects on the Christian journey of grief turned into resurrection joy. So I hope you enjoy what she has to share with us today. The journey towards Easter is a circular one. It's like a prayer labyrinth with no beginning or end because Easter nestles right into the Christian liturgical calendar. With no start or finish, it reflects a small earthly picture of God the Infinite One. The path to Easter is also a winding path. If you asked me to think hard and pinpoint some beginning some genesis in this labyrinth, I would tell you that it begins with Epiphany. This is another season in the church calendar where we ask, to paraphrase Lauren Winner, who is this Jesus, this Christ who was just born? In response to this question, we get mystery, magic, mundane, stories about mustard seeds and mountains, Jesus wandering through the desert, and five loaves and two fish multiplying into a big enough bounty to feed an enormous crowd. In her book, Queer Virtue, Reverend Elizabeth Edmond makes parallels between the wild and wondrous biblical story, the paths we walk as Christians, and the queer journey. If queerness is indeed a path, she writes, it is wild and chaotic overgrown, twisting and turning back on itself, at times plunging into deep pools of unknown liquid, then emerging suddenly onto dry ground. Edmund asserts that queerness allows us to see nuance, made possible through Christ, who ruptures our binary thinking. Colossians 1 verse 16 reads, For in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I'd argue here that black and white thinking is a human creation, antithetical to the way God created the world. Shaken by this truth, we bring to mind a quote from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. God is not safe, but God is good. God's love of the queer, holding polarities together, does not often seem safe to us, but it is good. Whether or not we belong to the LGBTQ community, I believe that queerness is for all of us, as it is a verb as much as it is an identity. I see this conviction echoed throughout the Bible. Moses, an enslaved Israelite, became an adopted Egyptian through God's molding hand. Jesus, both divine and human, brings people, sinners and saved, eternal life. Even Samaritans, 
who some ancient Judeans demonized, became the heroes in Jesus' parables. Throughout the biblical story, Christ takes our human categories and turns them on their heads. Perhaps my favorite example, salient for our extroverted society, comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, my paraphrasing. Blessed are the shy, for I'll give you the world. While queerness is for all, the LGBTQ plus community may take comfort in particular non-binary truths tucked into scripture. Galatians 3.28 describes that in Christ there is neither male nor female. In the Old Testament, one of the generic names for God, Elohim, only appears plural in the original Hebrew language. Using this name for God, we can make a case for God's affirmation and even God's use of they-them pronouns. In addition to these more seismic, binary-breaking statements in the Bible, we also come across queerness in everyday, ordinary people's stories. One of Reverend Edmund's favorites is Mark 16, 1-8, in which Mary Magdalene finds Jesus' empty tomb. Edmund concludes about this passage, What is happening here is very queer indeed. What's so queer about it? Let's get to reading. This story in Mark's Gospel paints a full picture of Mary Magdalene and two other women first discovering Jesus' empty tomb. They begin their day shopping the market for spices to eventually enter the tomb and cover the stench of Christ's supposedly reeking body. I picture them preparing to remember and bless the one they love while also preparing to hold their noses and avoid death's suffocating smell. Mark reads, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Christ's body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? On that earth-shattering resurrection day, Mary comes with a plan to roll away the stone, a strong woman, but finds it already pushed aside. I don't know about you, but I find this plan-being-ruined thing very relatable. Mark reads, But then they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. For one, I believe in a literal resurrection, which leaves me also wondering about Jesus' emotions when he came back to life and shoved the boulder away from the tomb. Did he quiver with anxiety 
at what people might think of a resurrected man? Was he so excited that adrenaline pulsed through his body, helping him shoulder the stone from its position? Perhaps he felt triumphant joy, as if winning a lifelong fight. Mark reads, Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. We get clued in on Mary and Salome's emotional states. They are shaking, confused, shocked, and terrified. Maybe even a little miffed that their spice run was all for nothing. At this point, I imagine Mary questioning her reality, so in fear of the unexpected that she's left with only silence. It is not an accident that humanity, embodied in this woman, first encounters the resurrection here, in this place, and at this time, Reverend Edmund concludes. Mary has entered a threshold, one that communicates perfectly the God who cannot be contained, whose dynamic, fierce love cannot be killed and cannot be tamed. Fear, shaking, shock, and bewilderment. These only natural reactions to unexpected circumstances are painful for Mary until she realizes that Christ is, in fact, alive. This, here, is a salvific queering. The expected outcome of an ancient cemetery ritual gets turned upside down for something else entirely. Disrupting queer moments are what God is all about, both in our lives and in our universal ontology. God becoming human, God's miracles, and God's coming to life after death are all collective, Christian, oh shit kind of moments. God shakes us to life and queers our lives over and over again, through our baptism, through communion, through Christian community. Indeed, we have oh shit moments in all of the above. For Mary, she thinks, where the heck is the one I love? Where is the body I came to remember and grieve? The resurrection not only disrupts her life, but time and space and sin itself. It disrupts her entire world, the entire world. Christian LGBTQ plus folks know life-altering, disruptive, oh shit moments too, albeit personal ones. God is ever-present, so it's in God's character to be around for the oh shit moments. For LGBTQ plus Christians, one of these disruptions comes when they first realize that they are not straight or cisgender. Afraid that we LGBTQ plus Christians may not be believed or accepted for our unexpected, queer truth, we tremble and shake. As an LGBTQ plus Christian, perhaps like Mary, I was afraid, not of God's reaction to my truth, but the response of God's people. Will my friends and family believe my pain and my joy? 
Will they accept and love me in my long and unexpected journey? Ultimately, after years of questioning my sexuality, I came out to myself as a gay Christian woman and publicly came out of the closet during Lent. It was definitely my oh shit moment. With ashes on my forehead, reminding me of my mortality, I decided that life was too short to be anything but my whole self. Thanks be to God. After the joy and surrealness of publicly coming out calmed down, I was both heartbroken and unsurprised to find that multiple gay Christians had contacted me. They spoke a resounding refrain. I am in the closet and I'm terrified and bewildered. I am in the darkness and it hurts. For me, coming out of the closet has been a journey tinged with fear and trembling. For me, I believe that an essential part of my journey with Christ was to open the closet door with shaking hands and let God's loving light come through. In addition to joy, fear, relief, and love, coming out has also involved insurmountable grief. In fact, a wise therapist has told me that for most gay people, grief is the primary emotion in the coming out process. You grieve for your life before feeling fully alive, and grief is a spiritual as well as an emotional experience. Grief is loss, and grief is the cross. On Easter, after weeks of walking through our grief and sobering up to mortality, we celebrate the fact that Christ has died on the cross. Not only so, but Christ takes our broken mortality with him in the resurrection. Christ leaves the tomb and returns to life. With a wink in our eyes, we might say, Jesus comes out of the closet into truth and light. Some of us may have been taught that we, too, are promised resurrected bodies in Christ's resurrection. We may believe that flesh gets perfect through coming back to eternal life. However, transgender friar Shannon Kearns describes the resurrection differently. He reminds us that our bodies are resurrected as is, blemishes and all. He writes, Jesus in his resurrected body keeps his scars. He holds the wounds that were afflicted upon him. And yet, this isn't a cause for despair. It's a cause for hope. Because if Jesus still has his scars, then we don't have to be ashamed of the scars that we carry. And what a message that is. That we can love our scars. That we can embrace our bodies in their queer and transgender goodness. That we can be home in our skin. That even when people want to harm our bodies, we can claim them as good, scars and all. I don't know about you, but I've got scars for days. I have physical scars from my youthful and slightly aggressive soccer career, sorry brothers, but also emotional scar tissue from the bumps, twists, and turns of life's labyrinth. I have grief from many days in the closet. I take comfort in the fact that God himself was left for dead, a cadaver behind the tombstone, suffocated and alone. 
In my experience, suffocation and isolation is a part of the experience behind the closet. To my queer Christian family, God's love will find us through thick and through thin. Christian queer folks understand that resurrection is not a luxury, but an essential necessary process to breathe in life and love anew. God has been near to me in this journey, and I am glad that I can bring my whole gay story, shame, joy, anger, relief, all of it, to the cross for God to heal me and breathe creational life back into my lungs. I have true resurrection joy from finally being out. Call me old-fashioned, but I firmly believe that the Easter season is about much more than chocolate and tie-dyed eggs. I think it can change your life if you let it. It can queer your life towards spirit-led breath anew. And God's love will find you through thick and through thin. I imagine pastors sweating a little on Easter. They want to creatively, meaningfully tell the good news of the resurrection to many congregations who think they've heard these stories before. Standing before folks who annually thaw their Easter ham and don their Sunday best, what might they say that could change someone's life? Jelly beans and pastel dresses aside, along with the chocolate and eggs, I would say that on April 4th, We need these four words to linger with us. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. The rest will be icing on the carrot cake. Christ is risen proclaims a fact, taken as literally as you want. I'm not here to judge. And Alleluia, our response to that fact. Our response can be shouted, signed in American Sign Language, or spoken through gritted teeth and tears. I imagine each of us waking up on Easter, hugging our COVID-defined household and whispering, Christ is risen, Alleluia, as relief and joy wash over us. I imagine the very same relief and joy Jesus must have felt when he left the tomb. I also imagine the spirit-blessed comfort and joy that queer Christians feel when we come out as ourselves, gay, bisexual, transgender, asexual, non-binary, pansexual, all of it. Yet I don't want to mistakenly say that Alleluia is an exceptional set-apart word. The word Alleluia is actually most commonly found in the Psalms, the daily prayer book of God's people. In this fact, we gain crucial insight. Both the resurrection and the Psalms teach us about our transformation in Christ. If the resurrection is a dramatic baptismal event, then the Psalms are our daily reception of God's life-changing love. Eugene Peterson describes that the Psalms teach us how to pray, not expressing ourselves, but becoming ourselves. The Psalms, he concludes, bring us into the language of God's people, and we do not pray alone. I can see Reverend Edmund 
nodding along. The gospel is queer. We become more ourselves, and we do this in community. This is the queer Christian experience at its core. As a Christian, I also believe actions matter. So Christ is risen, alleluia, means more than just words. We have a responsibility to proclaim this message with our lives. When we donate to a classmate's top surgery or show up to a Black Lives Matter protest or mutual aid meeting or hold the hand of a loved one in hospice, we proclaim quietly and humbly, Christ is risen, alleluia. It's a daily conviction, a belief, and a verb that we both receive and give voice to, like the Psalms. We also have to tell ourselves this truth. Respecting and caring for ourselves honors Christ's resurrection in us. As we protect our time by saying no, as we cook ourselves a healthy meal, as we budget wisely, and as we remind others to use our correct pronouns, we recognize that the words, Christ is risen, alleluia, are ours. We follow their light and their truth. So, good people, male, female, and genderqueer, on Easter, may you proclaim this life-changing, binary-breaking truth as quietly or loudly as you want. May you do so not as some idealized version of yourself, but with your scars and insecurities and failures in tow. May you speak these transformative words with your voice and with your life. Christ is risen, alleluia. And with these words, may you become more yourself. Special thanks again to Micah Muda for her amazing work and story. Thanks to Cotter Coatman for producing the music for this episode. And thank you for listening. Till next time, grace and peace, my friends. Take care.